Hey guys, welcome to Because I Said So, the podcast where we discuss age and how it affects how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive others, and the conversations that we have because of it. Thank you for listening, and please leave a review to support the podcast. Thank you. Hey guys, so today's episode is a little bit different. If you keep up with me on Instagram, you'll know that I had the opportunity to be involved in a virtual town hall with a program called Opportunity Now. Um, It was hosted completely by teenagers and youth voices, and that was the goal. Um, It was called Speak Up, Lifting Teen Voices. And so we spoke on the topics of LGBTQ plus rights, Islamophobia, Black Lives Matter, and mental health, and I was able to speak on mental health and host that aspect of things. And it was such an insightful conversation, and it was really just so beautiful and so eye-opening for me and so I wanted to share that with you guys and so yeah this is definitely a longer one but feel free to skip around um if you want or you can listen all the way through that would be great but yeah I'm gonna let you get right into it so enjoy and I hope you have a great day so good afternoon everyone my name is Lionel Matthews I'm the Davidson County Juvenile Court Clerk and we have a special virtual town hall that has been Uh, planned, put together, and will be facilitated by uh, two of our Opportunity Now interns for this summer in the Juvenile Court Clerk's Office. Uh, Bata and Ali uh, will be the two interns that will be leading this session. This is our second uh, virtual town hall that we've held today. We have a total of four Opportunity Now interns, and our other two interns uh, led a virtual town hall this morning discussing uh, the issue of prison labor. This afternoon's discussion is entitled Speak Up, Lifting Teen Voices. Uh, this was very important to Bata and Ali uh, when we discuss what topics uh, they would want to, to discuss. And the first thing that, that really came out of that discussion was that they wanted to empower other young uh, teenagers, other young people, to uh, lift up their voices, to stand up for what they believe in. And so uh, I charged them and challenged them to think of what topics we could, we could present as examples. Um, and so they have chosen the topics of mental health, uh, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ plus issues, and Islamophobia. And uh, I think it's important to say that, you know, Teen Voice, in the important on just these topics, but there are other issues and topics that they could have chosen. Uh, of course, we do have a limited amount of time to, to present to you today. So uh, we wanted the discussion to be uh, very fruitful and we wanted, to, wanted it to have some teeth. And so we didn't pick too many topics, um, but I do think that the topics that they picked today uh, are very uh, important and personal to Ali and Bata and uh, I want to thank their guests. I'll let them introduce their guests, but I want to thank their guests for joining us as well. Uh, I'm gonna step out of the way. I'll come back at the end and help wrap us up. Uh, but now I'm gonna turn the, the floor over to Ali and Bata and let them begin with today's virtual town hall. Thank you. Hey guys, so uh, thank you so much for volunteering your time to speak with us about these uh, important subjects. 
as teenagers, we are told to live in this world, but we don't really get to have opinions on really important issues and we're not taken seriously when we do want to speak on these issues. And these topics that we've uh, come here to discuss are very important topics. So how we will do this is me and Ollie will be um, hosting and I will also be um, a speaker for Black Lives Matter. So we will alternate asking questions to each one of you guys and we will start with the introduction right now. So can you introduce yourself and provide pronouns and state what topic you're here to speak on? Let's start with Virginia. Hi, um, my name is Virginia. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm here to speak on mental health today. Ema? Hi, my name is Ema. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm speaking on Islamophobia. And Ash. Um, my name is Ash. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm here to speak on um, LGBT um, rights, I guess, and like a bit of representation. And my name is Bada, she, hers, her, and I'm here to speak on Black Lives Matter. Uh, hi, for, cause I don't really know two of the speakers here today. I'm, I'm Oliver, I go by Ollie, and I use he, him pronouns. Um, so we just wanna, this is just a general question for everybody. Like, why do you think it's important for teens to be able to speak up and really have their voices heard and be politically and socially active. Yeah. Um, I think it's, oh, sorry. No, you can go ahead, you're fine. All right, um, I think it's important because I guess, you know, teens have brains, you know, have thoughts and they should be able to express them because it's kind of suffocating when you can't really like speak on how you believe, oh my God, it's calling you down the stairs. I'm in the basement right now. Um, and you know, teens, old people really like, or people who've been around a lot, they've kind of been like, regimented to feel kind of way because they've been around a lot I guess kind of a way like kind of a brainwashing not like brainwashing but you know teens are a little more malleable they're able to change their opinions when new information comes because they're like they haven't been around a lot and they, it's easier to like change your opinions I guess when like new information comes or when you hear more people speaking out does that make any sense <laughs> yeah I I agree with that and I think that um, we hear the standard answer, kind of cliche, we are the future, but it's cliche because it's true. Um, we are the future, and I think that that is why when teens tend to speak out about things, uh, it tends to get more recognition sometimes. I mean, looking at things um, like Malala or the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shootings, like things like that, they get a lot of attention because um, people aren't used to young people speaking out about the issues that are going to affect them in the future and that affect them now. Um, so I think that that's why it's important because I mean, we also have niche issues that don't affect the people who are most often making laws that affect us. So I think a misconception that a lot of uh, people have is that because most young people can't vote, they shouldn't be politically active. Um, well, we will all be able to vote at a point, some point in the future. And people who are active politically in their youth are more likely to vote in the um, in their adulthood. So that's like w just one reason that young people should be active in politics. And another reason is, um, like Virginia touched on, there are so many issues that affect us predominantly that, you know, older adults don't really have to think about, such as school shootings. 
And um, if we we are not there to lead those to start those conversations, lead those conversations, nothing is going to get done um, when it comes to the problems that we care about. Okay, so because I am also answering for Black Lives Matter, I will answer this. Um, I feel like people do take our the rights we do have in America for granted. I feel like there are a lot of countries where you don't have a say in the government. You just live with what you have. You, you don't get to talk about what you want. It's what leaders want. And the fact that America is a, a representative democracy, we get to elect people who want to voice our opinions. We have a say in what goes on in our country, which a lot of people don't. And I feel like becoming politically and socially active at a young age allows you to realize the things that you're taking for granted and how the world works. So you're just not like thrusted into this world at 18 and are expected to know how everything works. I feel like it's a stepping stone. You have to understand how we have three branches of government. We have to understand what the mayor or governor or the senator does in order to be able to vote. Many people vote in ignorance. They just see an ad or they just pick, they just uh, vote on party lines and that's not okay. And I feel like being educated at a young age about politics helps you when you turn 18 and are able to vote on those. Um, sorry, those were all really, really great answers. Uh, another general question, we have this one and another one, and then we'll go on to our specific topic questions. Um, how would you guys encourage teenagers who feel as if their voices don't matter to become involved and like more politically active? Um, I feel like there's so many things you can do. Um, you kind of have to sometimes force your way in and force your voice to be heard. And um, I know at our school specifically, I go to Human Fog downtown, we are very active in writing letters and also being downtown. We can go and we can speak to legislatures. Um, but I think that the biggest thing is just having dialogue with people. I think that we've learned so much about um, the power of just speaking with people and really trying to have those important discussions. And so I think that that's how you can get involved. I think seeking out resources that educate you um, first and foremost so that you feel comfortable speaking um, and yeah, I'd say just trying to start conversations as much as possible, because that's really how you get things done. And um, if you make it personal and you make it intimate, you're much more likely to get um, positive actions done. So for me, I feel like as a young person, I feel like it's good starting right now to pick a couple issues that you're very passionate about, a couple issues that you could continuously talk about hours on hours that you really believe in and to do something about it because you don't have to be all over the place with what you believe in now because yeah you are still uh what's it called not 18 so and I feel like when you show these legislators your passion for what you're talking about they'll listen because I do it at Hume Fog as well and I was talking to this legislator about Save the Children and why it was so important to me and when I tell you he was like floored that I cared, you know, cared about something bigger than me was really amazing. So just finding something you're super passionate about. So I agree uh, very strongly with both of you. And I, I think that um, at 
you know, when you say having conversations, that might sound like a very simplistic answer, but I, I really do think the solution is that simple to have to sit down and talk. I think where it gets a little complicated is finding the courage to do that. Um, typically, when you're like most of the adults in our lives, they're kind of like our superiors, like there are professors or bosses. So um, it is definitely very intimidating to go out and um, talk about things that you care about. Um, and I think one solution to kind of taking that step is um, organizing all your talking points, doing all your research, because not only does that make you more confident in yourself and in your beliefs, but it also um, makes other people, adults, more likely to take you seriously as they realize you're not just, you know, speaking up for attention or whatever. You actually care about these topics. And um, I think a lot of teenagers have this conception that political activism is just like protesting and giving these big impassioned speeches, which are great, but it, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be that big. It can be just talking to your parents about whatever's on the news at night. Um, I think it, uh, it could definitely like, um, sorry, uh, it could definitely help like teens just like educate other teens and just have conversation like by creating like a safe environment to share opinions because some people feel like can't really like speak without being like interrupted or just like shut down immediately and also having like an open dialogue where people can like disagree and it'll just be fine like they won't like go crazy or anything but also showing like what teens can do because sometimes people don't really know what they can do so they don't really do anything like people will usually just think of protesting but you can also you know call your legislators or like talk with people who disagree with you try to like educate ignorant people you know just like give them like the resources they can to make a change show what they can do so maybe like so maybe like they could like have like a guiding hand or something in like activism like younger people so they know what to do and can help like other people spread the message Uh, kind of going off of what Ash said, um, the next question is, how can you believe, how can you believe you can educate those around you who don't understand your, or disagree with what you, uh, your topic or view? Um, so one big thing that I think I've found when I'm trying to have these discussions with people is, um, to state first that I disagree with their opinions and not them as people, because if you come at it in a very combative way, um, they won't listen. That's just, it's not the best way to do it. Um, their ears are going to be closed off before you even get started. So I think trying to have that discussion um, and understanding that they're usually coming from a place uh, where they mean well and where they're searching for something, um, whether that be happiness, safety, something like that, um, and that you hear where they're coming from, but that you disagree about maybe the route to get there and educating them with what you believe and saying that you hear them out and you see them as people and you see their desires, but that you disagree with their opinions. Because I think that when you have compassion and you humanize them um, in these like intimate discussions, instead of just being combative and just um, flat out like disagreeing with them, you're a lot more likely to be able to have a really good dialogue. I definitely think it helps like knowing where people disagree with you are coming from, you know, like if they went, if they were in a dangerous neighborhood, they might 
be more into like having guns around, but they don't realize that about like school shootings and crime rates. So just like seeing where they come from as a person and their personal experiences, seeing how they could, um, that could influence their opinions and bringing up what you, what you would think would, you know, evidence and stuff and like statistics or, you know, maybe like hearing them out or just like agreeing with them. Or not just agreeing with them, but like hearing them out and hearing how their personal experiences have influenced them or, and like seeing maybe if they're, if they also have evidence to back up their point, you know, just having like a healthy dialogue and conversation. So I love this question because I admittedly do sometimes struggle um, when it comes to having conversations with people um, of different backgrounds with different opinions from me. But what I've found tends to work and creates meaningful dialogue is um, touching on what everyone else has said trying to understand that person's view. Um, for me, that is listening rather than listening to understand rather than listening to respond. So, um, you know, like sometimes in the past, I have had a tendency to just like wait for the other person to finish so I can hit them with whatever my next point is without even listening to whatever they've just told me, whatever um, opinion or thought they have. And I think um, Victoria is definitely right when she says that people can take counter arguments as a personal attack and that can be really hurtful and you know alienating so it's important to let people know that you do value their opinions even if they're different from yours and from there you can create meaningful dialogue which might lead to them understanding your point more so for me, I humanize whatever issue it is. Like, I feel like you could do so much by spitting out fact, by in fact, in fact, statistic, statistic, but you're really not arguing the point at hand. The point doesn't like, doesn't surround itself by facts. You know, it's humans that we're talking about and human rights that we're talking about. But so many of these conversations and I've, I've also struggled with this. I would you know, respond, I would text to respond. So I would always be looking for that counter argument, that counter statistic. That's not what you should be doing. You should humanize whatever issue you're talking about and talk about how it, how it has personally affected you or someone you know, because people are more willing to listen to personal experiences rather than just another statistic or fact. Um, to add just to add on to what you just said, uh, that um, I think teenagers especially we care a lot a lot about our friends and our peers so knowing that something your friend cares about really affects them um, definitely makes someone more likely to care about that issue in turn um, as opposed to if you, you're just like oh well it affects people somewhere else it affects these statistics these numbers so I definitely agree with you on that point yeah, and adding on to that too, I think it's important to create those um, spaces where we make it okay to change opinion um, and we make it okay to learn and grow because at the end of the day, we could also change our opinion. We could understand that maybe um, something that they said swayed the way that we think. And so I think just having those, um, like, like you said, those personal stories and those passionate conversations that are really humanized in order to create those safe spaces and in order to really see each other.
My laptop is about to die. Give me two seconds. Sorry about that. Um, we're going to go ahead into the specific questions for the topic. So we're going to start with uh, LGBT because that's first on our list. So this one is to Ash. Um, well, looking back on our community's history, there are people such as Martha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera who pushed for much of the rights we uh, for changes for much of the rights we have today. How do you? What do you think we can take away from them right now, so that? we can continue to push forward. I guess to just keep going because being seen leads to tolerance and tolerance leads to acceptance. Just having the conversation out there because some people, they don't even know what LGBTQ people are going through. They don't know the laws that are being passed to take away or give us rights. Like people just don't know some people aren't involved so they don't care. So just being visible and being out there and being outspoken can definitely help the cause and just talking about having an open conversation and you know being able to collect statistics and knowing what people are going through can definitely help like just change the way people look at LGBT people and how they treat them. Thank you, Ash. Um, this next one, we're gonna be rotating through. So this next one is Black Lives Matter. We're gonna ask Bata. Uh, how do you respond to someone who refuses to listen to your points and how do you deal with someone using the phrase all lives matter? Okay, so this has ha this has happened very often to me. I would try to engage in conversation with someone and they, like I said earlier, they would just hit me with statistics. Well, white people get, um, what's it called, shot by the police more than they uh, black people do. I have to hit first and for foremost, I have to counter whatever that is with another, you know, fact to show them that they're just factually incorrect, you know. And when people say all lives matter, I, you know, I tend to respond with yes, of course, every every life matters. But right now, we're focusing on Black lives because Black lives are the ones that are being endangered and being killed. And you know there's not really many arguments you can use to like counter that. I was having a conversation with someone a couple of days ago and every time I told him that, you know, black lives matter and that um, we need to be doing something about it, he would hit me with, well, black on black crime. And I think this might be another question for later. So I don't want to touch too much on it, but I would always respond to him that it wasn't right for him to be talking on black on black crime because that is just crime period. White people kill majority of white people and same thing goes with race. And it has nothing to do with race. A black person do not, does not go up to another black person and kill another black person because they're black. It's a matter of proximity. And just humanizing what I'm saying and giving real accounts of children, children who've been killed by police and, you know, putting a whole bunch of like emotion and st st lack of a better word, stories of people who have died at the hands of police that could have been avoided if police officers were vetted, if police officers had the resources and were trained better. Bada, do you want to ask the next question or should I? So, 
So this one's for Islamophobia, Ima. How would you describe the term Islamophobia to someone unfamiliar with it? Okay, so um, the technical definition of Islamophobia is the fear of Muslims or the religion of Islam, but that um, the way we use it today generally encompasses um, hatred towards Muslims as well, um, and bigotry and associations with people who look Muslim. So um, Islamophobia became a term after 9-11 because um, obviously Muslims were in the spotlight very negatively and there was a surge of hate crimes um, that year. So that's when Islamophobia became a, um, a like hot, hot topic, hot word. Um, and unfortunately, it's still an issue that um, is dealt with today. I would say not as overtly, but it definitely still does exist in our society. Um, even though Muslims have existed in the United States for years, um, a lot of the enslaved people who were brought over here from West Africa were Muslims, which people don't know. Um, it's, it's a matter of fact that Muslims have um, contributed so much to society. And yeah, there are still so many misconceptions in the media about Muslims. Uh, thank you so much, Ima. This next question is for Virginia. Um, how do you think we can normalize mental health completely in society? Yeah, so I think it goes back to what we said at the very beginning, those conversations. Um, social media definitely gets a lot of hate. And although I don't think that social media is a completely negative thing, I think that a lot of times it can be a very isolating thing if we don't use it correctly. Because again, you do see um, kind of what you hear about in the cliches of um, those who are opposed to certain aspects of social media is the fact that you just kind of scroll through and you see the highlight reel. And I think that that is one big way that we can normalize it as teens is by using our social media to, yes, like advocate for um, those like happy moments in our life and um, put those forward, but also to be real and to be honest and to be raw and vulnerable when we are struggling. Because I think that it mental health affects everyone, regardless of if you are um, deep into a mental hardship or if you're just experiencing um, a period of struggle. It affects everyone. And so I think that we just have to have these discussions. And I think that also educating people. Our parents didn't deal with mental health in the same way that we do. And they also didn't have the resources to educate themselves in the way that we, that we do. And so I think that unfortunately, the onus, the burden has fallen on us a little bit to educate the older generation. But I think that even though that may seem like a burden originally, it's actually a great opportunity because it allows us to have those really vulnerable discussions as well. And I think that um, having more widespread education, you know, like making it a class in school instead of just like psychology, really focusing on mental health, things like that to really normalize it. Uh, I totally agree with that. I am a person who deals with mental health and I think uh, 
conversation is going to be a lot of what's normalizing it. We're going to go back to Ash um, on something I can also relate to. Um, do you feel like your sexuality and gender identity are taken seriously by people older than you? Uh, um, some more than others. <laughs> um, my sexuality, I don't really have to label all my sexuality, and some people, like, can't comprehend that, because humans, like, love to label things, love to, you know, have a specific thing, and they're just like, what do you mean you don't label it? <sighs> like, it's very just like, yeah, I just don't, you know, but my gender identity, I'm non-binary, so people don't really get that. When I explain it to them, they were like, well, how do you pee? It's like, well, it's not your business. And they're like, they love to say that they're, you know, older, so they know more, they understand more, they understand me more than myself. Some older people are willing to, like, understand and let me explain it to them, and they accept me. But some just don't listen at all. They just don't listen. They don't really care. They just disregard it and, like, like misgender me all the time. It's really annoying. It just really depends, I guess, you know, on how... Yeah, it just really depends, like, every person is, you know, it doesn't matter the age, I guess. But usually younger people are more accepting, but yeah, older people, it just really depends. It's kind of like 50-50. I totally get that, and I sometimes accidentally misgender you, so I'm so sorry for that. Um, it's alright. <laughs> okay, we're going back to Bata now. Um, how do you deal with someone saying they don't see color and why is this statement damaging? So when I think of the statement, I don't see color, I think of the book, The Hit You Give, which I read. And she said something very powerful when uh, someone said that to her. She said, if you don't see color, then you don't see me. And that's what I think. When you say you don't see color, you're not seeing the hardships, the struggle, and my cultural appreciation because I do love being black and the fact that people want to take that away it takes away whether you know it or not when you say you don't see color because my this the color of my skin is very important to me I pride myself on being black which I'm sure many people pride themselves on being whatever the race culture ethnicity ethnicity that they are and when you say you don't see color you're not pushing forward any agenda you're just you're being ignorant you could there's so many other things you could say you could sit down and talk to someone and understand their struggle rather than just blow it out of proportion and say i don't see color you know while we do bleed the same color at the end of the day certain people deal with things that other people will never have to deal with and we have to acknowledge that So this next question is for Ima on Islamophobia. Have you personally dealt with Islamophobia? Um, yes, I have dealt with Islamophobia, but before I get into that, I kind of want to mention that um, Islamophobia, I think there are sort of different kinds. So I think sometimes it can stem from just ignorance and other times it stems from hatred of, you know, all things foreign. Um, I, I have to say I was a little bit lucky growing up because I went to a very small school, um, and everyone knew each other. Everyone was pretty nice to each other. So really the most that I dealt with when I was in high school was ignorance. And usually that can be fixed 
by talking to people, like we mentioned earlier. Um, I wasn't really as aware, I think, of like what a lot of other Muslim teenagers go through, what Muslims in the real world go through until I started college. And I encountered a lot of people, a lot of people from all over the country, um, people from places where they've never met a Muslim, never seen a Muslim in real life. Um, and a lot of the people I've made friends with in college have, like I'm their first Muslim friend or I'm the first Muslim person they've ever met. Um, uh, I think something that really sums up the Islamophobia epidemic is the fact that 50%, over 50% of Muslim students in uh, middle school and high school have dealt with bullying because of their religion, whereas um, compared to only 20% of the general population of high schoolers in America. Um, I think what has been most hurtful for me more than say, like I have a friend, for example, she's never seen a Muslim before. She was from a really small town and she was really curious about it. She asked me a lot of questions um, about my hijab, about my religion. And she realized like, you know, she had a lot of misconceptions. I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that you are ignorant about um, a group of people. Um, and I think that when people meet me, it gives them an opportunity to put a face to this, to something that would otherwise just be a concept or like a group. Um, but sometimes you do encounter people who feel very strongly about Muslims because they just don't, they can't comprehend, not because of ignorance, but because they genuinely just don't like anything that does not remind that makes them think of, you know, non-American, alien, foreign. Um, so I, I have definitely met those kinds of people and it is very frustrating to realize that like no matter how human you are, no matter how similar you are with this person, um, they, they're not gonna like you just because they have this idea in, your, in their mind that you're so different from them that you're not worthy of the same respect as someone else and it's definitely i don't want to talk too much but it's it's definitely um different people have different experiences so for example being a woman and hijab wearing woman uh, my experience might be a lot different from uh, a muslim man who's not visibly muslim so um there are def definitely so many layers to it and i'm really grateful that um I've gotten the chance to meet so many people who have um, been open to learning more about my religion and me as a person and see past that. So I would like to add on to that since it's something that, you know, you did really good on explaining. I feel like, like you said, sometimes I'm the first Muslim person that someone has ever encountered. And I'm okay with answering questions. I'm not very stingy about it. I'll just get right to the point. I know some people are very sensitive and need like kind of a familiarity with someone before they can answer certain questions. But because I know that this might be the first and last time they've ever 
like actually talk to a Muslim, I need to make sure they understand that I'm just another person. Um, I have had a lot of encounters with people and because I'm like visibly Muslim, I will get a lot of like comments that really throw me off, especially because I go to school downtown and I see all these random people. Someone will like yell something really hateful towards me. You know, you just gotta get like continue walking and move on because you know, sometimes people aren't worth your time. And if, they don't, if they're not willing to sit down and listen to another person because of their faith, it's not really someone you should continue to try to talk to. I know right now, I think Belgium, if I'm not mistaken, is trying to, if not already have passed a um, bill um, not allowing hijabs in higher education, which when some people might think that because we are, we wear hijabs, we might be oppressed, but it's not, it's not, that's not it. I feel like there's a distinction between cultural norms and like religious norms. People need to understand that um, Muslims in Somalia are not the same as Muslims in Iran. We have different issues, we deal with certain things. And when, you like talk about a Muslim and you just like generalize a Muslim, it's, it's counterintuitive, just like a Christian in, um, you know, America and a Christian in maybe Egypt, they're not the same thing. You know, there are different aspects, there are different cultural norms that go into religion. Religion isn't simple, so. Islamophobia is, you know, difficult to talk about, but I feel like there are a lot of good people too. I remember the good things more than I remember the bad things. The smiles I get, the um, I like your hijab today, or, you know, the, the compliments, that makes all the more difference than the negative, the negativity and the hate I get. Um, thank you so much. We're gonna go on to mental health and Virginia, you did such a good job answering the first question. You literally answered the second as well. Um, so I'm just gonna ask you a question I had drafted a while ago. Um, a lot of people who struggle with mental health, I know I did this for a really long time, thought that medication was like the thing that was gonna fix us. I don't know how to describe it. Um, but a lot of effort that we put in on our own is how we fix ourselves, but not a lot of people know that. What practices do you think we should normalize for people who are struggling with their mental health and how can we spread the information with these practices? Yeah, so I was actually having this discussion with my mom today talking about medication versus not. I think that medication is always um, something to look into because I think that it's there tends to always be a balance between the chemicals but then also trauma and life experiences. I think that we are all um, compounds of our trauma. We're all constantly trying to deal with it. Trauma is subjective. Everybody has it. Um, and we're just constantly learning from that. And so I think that one thing that is crucial with everybody's mental health, I people who just have tendencies, anxious or depressive tendencies, um, or people that full-blown have depression or anxiety or OCD, eating disorders, whatever you have, um, normalize seeing counselors. I think that that is one of the biggest things um, I, I think it's also 
Black Indigenous People of Color Mental Health Awareness Month as well. Um, and that I was listening to a podcast about that actually, um, and about how there is such a stigma surrounding um, Black men seeking mental health and seeking counselors and things like that. And um, even further beyond that, I think there's just such a stigma around seeing counselors. People view it as a weakness. People view it um, as something that people who are really quote unquote sick need to do. And I think that it's just something that we all need for our mental health um, and just making sure that we are stable and having someone to talk to who is licensed in practice. Because I mean, talking to your friends and talking to your family and talking to trusted people is always helpful. But I think that a lot of times we need to go a step further um, and really dive a bit deeper with a mental health professional. And so I, I think that that is the biggest thing that we need to normalize, not just seeing it as um, a last resort, but seeing it as maybe a first step. Yes, I totally agree with that. Um, going back to you, Ash, um, do you feel that it's possible to kind of educate and um, ex like educate and open the eyes of people who are quote unquote homophobic? Um, sometimes, maybe sometimes not. Some people's beliefs are just ingrained into them. Like, it's just cemented into their brain. Like, you can't change their mind at all. They just will not listen whatsoever. But some people just have been so convinced by, like, their parents or, like, their church leaders that they don't really have their own opinions. Like, they haven't really done their own research. So you actually sell them, like, evidence of personal experiences. They just, they were, like, totally changed their mind. Well, not totally, but, like, they're a little homophobic. Like, they totally, like, they get it and they have like their own opinions with like reasons to back it up. I guess it's kind of like seeing which people who are actually homophobic, who actually see gay people and like see what's happening to gay people and like just see, think it's fine. Or other people who've just been like convinced by the people around them and have, don't really like think about it that much. It's just kind of like seeing which is which, I guess. And kind of slowly breaking them down as well. Some people don't change on a dime, you know. Just kind of like just talking to them and letting them see you as a person. But like, I guess not getting like super close to them because they are homophobic. And as a gay person, I wouldn't want to be super close to a homophobic person because that doesn't really mesh well with me. But I guess um, but getting them down at least to non-dangerous levels so they don't like commit a hate crime or become like very hateful. Thank you so much, Ash. Um, Bada, this is actually something that's like really going on right now. Uh, what's your position on the removal of Confederate statues and why do you think the government is so hesitant to remove it? Um, my position on the removal of Confederate statues is it, it, they have to go. They cannot sit in front of the Capitol and so many other historic places where a lot of um, politics and policies are made, it's like we're idolizing these statues, these men who are the leader of the KKK, men who've slaughtered, um, you know, slaves. They're not good people. And I think Confederate statues are a symbol of hate. I don't think if you would go into Germany, you would see Hitler idolized. I think it's a very dark part of American history and when I think of statues, I think of like idolizing. I think of honoring. I don't think we should honor these men. 
uh, these men have done nothing of value or good to our society. This idea of Confederacy being heritage is absurd. It's, it's not heritage. It lasted a couple years, first of all. And second of all, they lost the war. Like, I, I, I can never understand this. And I just think it's hate, period. I think when you keep these statues up, you're allowing years and years of oppression to continue to continue. Like, I was reading this um, letter by the mayor of New Orleans, I think, and he talked very passionately about removing the statues because he talked to this black man who told the mayor, I don't, I, it breaks my heart every single time my son points to a statue and tells me, um, ask me, who is this person? And he has to sit down and explain to him what terrible person, what kind of like terrible person he was. And the fact that black Americans have to walk down the street, like if you walk downtown, you will find plenty of these statues and it's, it's not okay. And I get the idea of not erasing history. But if you were to like, I feel like American history is so whitewashed period that people don't know their own history at all. So to say that statues will allow you to remember your history is completely invalid. And I feel like I don't believe all Confederate statues should be destroyed. I, I, I think if people are so caught up on not erasing history, they could belong in a museum and people could spend their time looking at these um, statues and understanding why they're such a terrible and dark part of American history. So that is my opinion on Confederate statues. I hate them. I hate every single last one of them, but if we're going to talk about heritage, let's put them in museums. And I think the second part was, why do, you, why do I think the government is so hesitant to remove them? I think certain people, like I think our governor said a couple of days ago that they were removing um, one of the statues in front of the Capitol, and I think that was an amazing move. I feel like more and more people are feeling emboldened to do it in the South because if one governor can do it, another governor can. But I feel like our our president is so hesitant to do it because it's not a secret that he's a racist, and I feel like he thinks he will lose a majority of his support if he does that because uh, the South is really where he picks up his uh, electoral votes. So if you guys don't mind, I'm going to like mention one little thing about that. So yeah. um, at my college, at MTSU, we have a building named after um, Nathan Forrest, who was like a huge white supremacist dude back in the day. And there have been a lot of move movements, even before I started at MTSU, to get the name removed, but it has been rejected multiple times by the um, like Tennessee Historical Commissions. Um, I, I definitely agree with keeping history like intact and letting people know what has happened in this country. But I think there are better ways to do it than putting, you know, bad people on a pedestal. So, um, for example, in Germany, obviously they learn about the Holocaust. They learn about his, uh, Hitler in school, but they're, they're not going to put like statues 
of him up or name buildings after him. So I definitely agree with the sentiment that history should be preserved. That is not the way to do it though. Statues and buildings are not the way to do that in my opinion. So with your, uh, I have a question for you for Islamophobia. What encouraged you to intern at the American Muslim Advisory Council this summer? Um, so, you, you know, as my friend, you know that I talk a lot about um, what's going on in the world on social media and stuff, try to be active in that way. But I, I kind of felt frustrated that um, nothing I was doing was really creating any productive change um, because usually when I like post something on social media, the people who are seeing it are my friends, people who agree with me on these issues anyway. So um, I decided to intern with the AMAC to kind of try to like broaden my reach and my ideas and hopefully um, create more productive change in Tennessee. Okay, thank you. Uh, Virginia, uh, another new question for you since you just hit it out of the park with your first question. Um, why do you think we have this stigma around mental health in society? Yeah, so I think, I think it's very deep-rooted in a lot of different ways. I think um, specifically, mental illness is not something that we can tangibly see most times. Um, most times we can't see that somebody is as sick. Like if we were to see someone with a broken arm, you know, we would be like, okay, like they're injured, like let's get them help. But it's hard to quantify um, a mental illness, I think. And so I think that a lot of times because we can't see it and because we still have um, such a hard time diagnosing, it, like specifically, like there's no, you can't take a blood test and be like, oh, you have depression or you have schizophrenia or anything like that. And so I think that that's part of the reason is because um, it, it's hard to diagnose and it's hard to see. And another thing is because I think we have ideals that are rooted into our system that don't allow us to be vulnerable, that don't allow us to talk about it, specifically for males. Um, I think that obviously we don't let males be emotional. And I think that um, we're making steps towards that but I don't think that we're there yet, um, specifically with males, but also with females, just in general. I think that we have been taught to be very closed off and we have been taught to kind of keep these things bottled up and we've been taught that everybody goes through things and that that's just how life works. Um, and it kind of creates that cycle and that culture of just keeping those things bottled up and letting them fester and just um, struggling in silence. And so I think that it's, there's a lot of things. There's cultural, there's medical things, and they all kind of tie together into why there are those stigmas. Yeah, definitely, especially on the men thing, men just not being able to express emotion is something we really need to work against. Um, Ash, we recently won in the Supreme Court with rights uh, to protection against discrimination in the workplace. Um, uh, what are your feelings about this and what is your feeling about the Trump administration working so hard to try to take away rights from us, especially when in his original campaign when he was first running for president, he had a section saying he was going 
to protect us and our rights. Um, I think it's very good that the Supreme Court denied that UE would be able to discriminate against LGBT people. I'm glad that they said they completely denied it, they shut it down, but it's very upsetting that it was just put in there in the first place. But I'm, yeah, I think Trump, he just lied. He lied basically just to get like, you know, I think there are some gay people who are Republicans and it's very baffling, but yeah, he just wanted to get them on his side. A lot of Trump supporters like to pretend that they're not homophobic, they're not racist, but what the, who they're supporting, what they support, is the entire opposite, you know? They think homophobia is just killing someone who's gay. It's a lot different from that. There's lots of different facets of it. And yeah, I think he, I think Trump just lied. I think he lied, yeah, pretty much. And yeah, I think the people who put he put in his cabinet are very homophobic. I think, yeah, they want to just, it's not about freedom of speech, it's about being able to be protected. Like, uh, honestly, yeah, freedom of speech does not mean freedom of consequences. The government isn't saying that you can't just not discriminate because discrimination sometimes can be subjective. Some people might see discrimination and some people might not. It's just very subjective. And I think they also know a lot of Trump supporters take um, freedom of speech very like, personally. Like um, they have like a right to be racist or homophobic. And I think I'm going on a tangent, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I just got lost for a second. You're good, and I totally agree with you that he definitely lied. Um, Bada, this is a really long question you wrote. In South Africa, after the, how do you say that? Uh, the apartheid. That there was a truth and recollection? <laughs> Reconciliation. I got it. I got it. So the question is, in South Africa, after the apartheid, there was a truth and reconciliation period where South Africans looked at their oppressors and gave them a platform to testify to the gross civil rights abuses they committed and asked for amnesty. This allowed Black South Africans to face their oppressors and move forward. After slavery was abolished in America, there were failed attempts at reconstruction, but no plan really helped the newly freed slaves. Do you think reparations are still owed to African Americans? Keep in mind, after Roosevelt wrongfully, forcibly relocated Japanese Americans into concentration camps during World War II, they were given reparations years later. So that's a very long question and it's very packed. So essentially, what had happened in the apartheid was um, um, native black South Africans were living amongst themselves in different tribes in South Africa. And then you had the Dutch who came in and kind of colonized um, South Africa. And it got really bad to a point where these um, white South Africans, because over time they did um, learn their own language and they were, they were kind of removed from their Dutch ancestry, but they were distinct, distinctively white South Africans. And they created this perfect system of systemic racism. Every single part was in a sense, perfect. They separated the different tribes. They made them hate each other. They were There was already a language barrier. There were so many things that they did. In fact, I'm reading this book about um, Noah Trevor and how he was born a mixed child during the apartheid, and it's so good. And I'm reading it right now, and he's talking about how South Africa perfected racism 
by looking at America, um, by looking at so many Australia and other countries that were dealing with it, and they made this perfect system of racism. And over the years, after Mandela was free, they um, and the apartheid was over, Black South Africans didn't want to seek revenge. They took this different approach. It was the truth and reconciliation period where they had, um, where they talked to their oppressors and some of them, yes, some of them were killed, the people who had like mass genocides or whatever, but majority of them were forgiven and they moved on as a country. And with America, I don't think that happened. I feel like Abraham Lincoln, while many people credit him for the um, release of slaves from slavery, it was a political, it was just a political um, tactic. He was against the expansion of slavery. He wasn't against slavery. He decided to free the slaves to create civil unrest in the South so he could win the war. He freed the slaves so European nations would not support the Confederacy out of um, morals. So it was politics. And after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, president after president after president, they never really addressed Black Americans. It was just something that was too controversial at the point. And you see that you see that mindset even now. You know, we hardly see presidents take a firm and um, stance on advancing the um, livelihood of Black America. It's always, you know, a point in their agenda that's never actually accomplished. And the question at hand was, do you think reparations are still owed to Black Americans? And I do think they are. I'm not a consequence of um, American uh, slavery because my parents did immigrate here from Somalia to America, but I owe, um, I owe the freedoms I have to Black African Americans what they did during the civil rights. And I don't think America has formally apologized at any point. They're, they're, I feel like we're, America just hides in shame. It, it whitewashes history. It uses these words, these light words in history where we don't ever get to see the real picture, the, the horrific acts America committed. It's just swept under the rug. And whether reparations are, are in the form of payment or simply actually advancing the livelihood of, American, of Black Americans through funding of HBCUs or um, putting more Black people into college, um, equitable, equitable, sorry, equitable um, education. So I, think, I do think there's a lot of things that America is missing that continues to divide white and Black America. Um, Ima, so Islamic Center of Nashville, also known as ICN, was recently vandalized and an offensive ad was published in the Tennessean. How did you feel learning about this as a teen? Do you ever get shocked by these acts or has it happened to you so, or has it happened so often that you've normalized it? And please provide context into what the ad said in the Tennessean, please. Okay, so... I hear about Islamophobia a lot as a Muslim, and um, you know, 
I'm sure you do too on social media, you know, like the community kind of just like shares these things. Um, but I was very shocked by the uh, vandalism at ICN. Um, for context, they had a Black Lives Matter uh, sign and a man got him on camera, a white man came by in the middle of the night and replaced that with um, All Lives Matter. That was shocking because I think that like I tend to um, sort of separate myself from things that happen in other states and other cities and like obviously Nashville is a very liberal city um, so I, I feel like uh, I've always had the idea that things like that happen other places that doesn't happen here so that was very shocking and very saddening because you know like first of all it was like kind of a double hate crime Islamophobia and anti-blackness um, and the ad the Tennessean ad was uh, we actually talked about this in my internship and addressed it there was an ad published by a far-right group that basically claimed Muslims were gonna attack Nashville on July 18th and there, it, was, it was insane there's like a bunch of other stuff saying Donald Trump is like the next Lord Savior, the Messiah basically it was it was really out there um honestly my first reaction to that was to laugh because it was just so ridiculous but um like as i thought about it stuff like that's so damaging because there are people like i said there are people a lot of people in the state who have never met a muslim before to them we're just like this faceless entity and um that terrified me that someone would read the ad and you know want to retaliate in some way, um, do something to a Muslim. So yeah, that was, those are both very saddening incidents. Um, but I think the response, especially to the ad was, was very, made me very hopeful because after the ad came out, like all over social media, people were calling out the Tennessean, um, a lot of organizations, the Tennessean issued an apology and they actually, donated the um, revenue from the ad to the American Muslim Advisory Council, which I interned with. So um, those incidents were horrible, but I think the response was really, I mean, it was great. Like it, it um, definitely brightened my spirits about the future of this state and this country. Uh, thank you. And I think this may have to be our last question because of time, because uh, it is two o'clock. So, Virginia, um, in movies and TV shows and subtly within society, we can sometimes glorify, mock, or romanticize mental health. Uh, phrases such as, I'm so OCD, I keep my backpack organized, or I have bad mood swings, I'm so bipolar, have become kind of normal in how we talk sometimes. And what do you think this does when it comes to stigma? of mental health and what are your personal opinions on it? Yeah, so I have a lot of opinions. As someone who has struggled um, with both OCD and an eating disorder, I think that those two things specifically are very romanticized. Um, again, like what you were saying, there's people who um, fail a test sometimes and get sad and say, oh, I'm depressed, things like that. It's very, very harmful to the people that deal with them because um, it kind of invalidates 
what they're going through. I think to those who aren't as educated about um, mental health and I call them mental hardships because I don't like calling them mental illnesses. I think that it's just not the best term to use. Those who aren't really educated about um, certain mental hardships, I think that, yeah, it kind of creates this false identification um, of what that truly is and or it can turn into a joke or just something that's too casual for people that are really suffering sometimes. I think that there are shows um, such as 13 Reasons Why that make it look very pretty and very trendy and very feminine and just kind of like um, this like beautiful tragedy and it's not like the, these things are um, again like I was saying they're things that people really suffer with and so I think that yeah the, the biggest issue with that is that it truly invalidates um, what people are going through and creates these misconceptions that people who um, are dealing with these things are already having to fight through and it just kind of continues to muddy the waters that are already very murky. Okay, thank you so much. And uh, thank you so much for everyone who came in to speak today. It really does mean a lot to us. So just wanted to say that. Thank you for taking time out of your day. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll close it out. Bada, did you want to say something before I make closing remarks? Uh, no, just that I'm so glad that every single one of you guys decided to speak on these topics. It really made uh, a huge difference for us. Yeah, I I echo Ali and uh, Bata, Virginia. Is it Ema? Yes. Ema, Ema, Virginia, Ash, thank you all for, for joining us. Uh, all of you all are very brilliant, brilliant young people. There were so many moments during this town hall that I wanted to unmute myself and kind of jump in to some of the questions. And I think adults feel like that a lot of times, but we have to learn to just step out of the way let you all lift your voices and let you lead. And uh, after listening to this conversation, I feel very comfortable with where our future is going, uh, not only in this city, but in this country, in the world. Uh, if we're gonna have young people like you all leading the way, we're gonna be okay as, as a people. and We're gonna continue to improve as a society. So continue to lift your voices up. I wanna encourage and support you all in that, uh, Bata and Ali, I couldn't be more proud of the work that you all did for our office this summer as interns. Uh, be very proud of yourselves for putting this together and continue to use your voices and your platform uh, to push for a positive change in this world. And for everyone joining us, uh, hope that you will encourage young people and allow young people to uh, lift up their voices and lead also. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon uh, and have a great rest of the day. Take care. Peace.